You're listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. Enjoy this exciting message from Senior Pastor Robin McMillan. One thing I wanted to um, wanted to let everyone know that uh, Sandy Forbes, uh, one of our great women of the church, is going to speak here next Sunday. And um, quite frankly, we don't have enough ladies who've done that recently, so I'm really, really looking forward to that. I think it'll be good. Pray for her. She'll probably get nervous. I get nervous every time I preach, so you should be nervous every time I preach as well. (laughs) And then I think the next week we have Andy Squires up. So it's going to be good. We have, uh, we began last week a study on the book of Ephesians and in the Passion Translation, Brian Simmons put under the name of that book, Heaven's Heaven's Riches. And um, I'm going to do a little bit of, uh, I'm not going to ask how many of you were not here last week because you won't raise your hand, so I'll do it this way. How many of you were here last week? Okay, I'm seeing the rest who aren't. Okay. So we're going to do, uh, going to do a little bit of review. And uh, queencity.church um, is our website, and it's got uh, last week's message if you want, want to go back and get it. But <clears throat> Ephesians is addressed to a group of believers who are rich beyond measure in Jesus Christ, yet living as beggars, and only because they're ignorant of their wealth. Since they have yet to accept their wealth, they relegate themselves to living as spiritual paupers. And um, I can't remember how many books of the New Testament Paul wrote. Is it 14 or 17? I'd have to go back and look. But almost all of the books that Paul wrote were addressing some specific issue or problem, um, except for the book of Ephesians. And Paul writes this book as um, his attempt to describe the great mystery that had been hidden since before the foundation of the world. And that great mystery was all about the Christ, Christ Jesus. And it was all about what he would accomplish when he came. And so Paul goes... um, he says a number of things. He, how many of you have ever read Psalm 91 and said that's too good to be true? Though a thousand fall at my side and ten thousand at my right hand, it shall not come near me. I shall only see the something of the wicked. Yes, recompense, whatever. But in other words, there are 11,001 on the battlefield. Everybody else gets blown up but you. That doesn't make sense. Well, the gospel really in some regards does not make sense. Um, you, you have to really have insight and revelation. And so when you read the book of Ephesians, Paul lays out this remarkable um, mystery or viewpoint of what actually 
Jesus accomplished through his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. And um, then he also, in the letter, prays twice that we would really get it. In other words, what God has done for us comes by revelation. You have to have your own personal relationship with Jesus and own, own depth of understanding to fully benefit from everything Jesus did for us. So that's um, a little bit of an in- introduction to the book of Ephesians. Paul actually wrote this in prison. So Paul writes these amazing letters while in the worst, worst of situations all about how wonderful God is. And so the idea is everybody has to prove out in their own life the value of God. That's one way to put it. Everybody has to prove out in their own life these promises of God. And um, it's a challenge. It really is a challenge. And and I'll say that by reading these first two verses. Um, Do we have Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 up there? Yes. Let's read this together. So great, this insight. May God himself, the heavenly Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, breathe his grace over you and impart total well-being into your lives. I want to make a point right here. Paul is asking God to do what? Impart total well-being into the lives of these people he's writing to by releasing grace. But then look what he says in the next verse. There's a contradiction or there's a tension here. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm has what? Already been lavished upon us as a love gift from our wonderful heavenly father, the father of our Lord Jesus, all because he sees us wrapped into Christ. This is why we celebrate him with all our hearts. And so a reasonable man would say that doesn't make any sense. Why would Paul ask God to do something and then tell us he has already done everything? And we're gonna, we're gonna look at this. We're gonna see. And I think, um, so many people hear the good news, but it doesn't translate into their everyday lives and their reasons. So we need to look at this. And so the next section of scripture I want to read in that same book where Paul reveals this great mystery, he says this in Ephesians 6, 10 through 13. We're gonna read this with me. Finally, my brethren, Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. I heard a preacher say one time, if you have on the whole armor of God, the devil doesn't know if it's you or God in there. I thought that was a great thing to say. Now, so I want to paint a little bit this picture. We have these great promises. 
Paul is actually praying that we might see what has actually been lavished upon us because, quite frankly, sometimes I don't feel lavished upon. I don't feel that lavished. Anybody ever felt that? I have just never felt that lavished upon. And so there's, there's an element of understanding we have to have here so that we don't get frustrated or so that we don't conclude that the Bible's not true because the Bible really is true. And so I want to go into something now, which was a dream I had. Now, let me be real clear. I don't establish theology based on dreams or visions or of any of that, but I do know dreams can help you understand some theology and some theological points that maybe you don't actually see or you don't see them to the depth you need to see them. So I just want to to tell you this little dream here. Um, years ago, I had this dream. Three angels came into my living room. And maybe for the first time ever, in an experiential sense, I sensed the love of God. So in this dream, these angels come into this room where I am, and I, I just feel this incredible love from God radiating through them. And so one of them asked me what my name was, and so I told them, and that messenger said, Oh, you're Joyful Philip. I, that didn't make any sense to me. Then another one of the messengers looked up at me and also asked my name. Once again, I told him my name, and that messenger also said, Oh, you're Joyful Philip. Well, I began to realize that the Lord was telling me something about myself I had not fully grasped. And if you look in the, um, of course, in the New Testament, Philip was one of the original evangelists. He had daughters that were prophets or prophetic and over the last 25 years, there have been these outpourings of joy um, in churches that a uh, certain amount of controversy about them. Nevertheless, the fruit that's been born in the lives of those people that got touched by that high-level high joy has been, it's been incredible. So, and, and some of that began to happen in, in meetings I was preaching in, but I didn't have any idea what these angels were talking about. So... Then the first one looked at me, and he said another mysterious thing. He said, you know that there is a prophetic tabernacle held up by nine tent posts called the Duns of God, don't you? You know, sometimes I share things with people, and then I can tell they're, they're glazing over. <laughs> Andy and I were talking about that last week. Some stuff we preach is just for us because nobody else gets it. And we're desperately trying to relay this thing, you know, and they're looking like, wonder what's for lunch. I mean, they're not getting it. Well, I did the glaze over to the, you know, it's terrible when angels come and you can't get it, you know. So I'm thinking, what in the world are they talking about? A prophetic tabernacle, some kind of a tent held up by tent stakes. There are nine of them, and the tent stakes are called the Duns of God. I just thought this, here's my note. I was clueless. Well, then 
The next comment that angel said was this, which really got my attention. When a person learns how to live in that place, all the fullness of God is at his disposal. Now, let's sort of put to the side the sort of weird part of the... But let's go to that part. What if there's a place that when you learn how to live in it, a spiritual place, not a geographical place, a spiritual place, a place of revelatory insight and faith, that when you have learned to live there, everything God has to offer is at work in your life? Well, see, that's what they were telling me. But I didn't, I didn't really understand the whole nine duns tabernacle deal. So I, um, I began to, I couldn't shake the dream. So I kept, I kept going back to it. Now, after they told me about this weird tent, and then they told me that Psalm 91 level, almost unbelievable promise that we could be filled with all the fullness of God, which Paul actually does mention later on in the book of Ephesians. You can know the love of God to the degree that you can be filled with the fullness of God. If you can see that later, we'll cover that at some point. But the Lord said to me, the enemy will not steal this from you, but your reason will try. And a friend of mine used to say, the reason of your heart is the treason of your heart, meaning reason will not get you where faith wants to take you. Logic will not get you there. If you have to see it before you believe it, you may never see it. And, and the principle David says in the Psalms is, I believed, part one, to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And so God really places a high priority on faith and what faith can actually produce in your life. So I really didn't understand I did know the Lord said my logic or my reason would try to steal from me what they wanted me to understand. And so I began to realize that the Lord was using this unusual method, this unusual dream in an attempt to open up my understanding of what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us in the gospel because the name of that building was the Duns of God. And done is the past tense of do. Now, what the angels were doing is they were describing a spiritual dwelling place, a place to walk in God, a relationship with God of a, of a level that could really be a huge blessing and benefit to it. But it was a place of understanding faith and having faith in the nine aspects of what God provided for us in the death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Jesus, what we call the gospel. So whenever I use the term gospel, I'm talking about that whole death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. They said that place was called the Duns of God to emphasize the many blessings, benefits, and aspects of not what God will do for us if we're good or we get it right or we're smarter than the next guy, but what he has done for us even before we ever got saved or ever even knew what we needed. Does that make sense? 
Now, it only struck me later because it was this idea about nine, the nine aspects, the nine things that were done. I realized later there are nine gifts of the Spirit, there are nine fruit of the Spirit. Now, I have studied this for probably over 20 years. That happened a long time ago. And that that encounter really um, helped form the way I look at the gospel. And um, I think they're way more than nine. I can't really get them all right. There's overlap, and you're going to see why in a minute. And last week, I read all of these, but this week I want to do something more. I want us to actually see these verses together because nine of the aspects I saw, all these things Jesus has done for us, all of them show up in the New Testament in the past tense, meaning they're things that are accomplished that we should learn how to access, not things we need, we need to earn or work for. It's a huge, huge shift in your mentality and in your thinking. Uh, the gospel, actually, uh, Paul writes in another letter, anyone that really believes the gospel, anyone that really understands what it is to know Jesus, anyone that really knows what it is to be saved or filled with the Spirit, if they have an accurate understanding, they have absolutely nothing they can boast of because it was all entirely given to them as a free gift even before they knew they needed a free gift, possibly, probably, literally, actually, before they were ever born. So, Galatians 2.20. Let's go through these because I want you to see these verses. I want this to register. I know I did this last week. Some things are too important just to bump into one time. They really are. They really are. If you don't have a good foundation, you're going to get your brains beat out week in, week out. And then you're going to be mad at God about it. And he really was trying to help you the whole time. So, Galatians 2.20. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Paul has this revelation that when Jesus was crucified, he was crucified with him. That's unreasonable. That makes no sense. But the essence of the gospel is not logical. It's a mystery. It really is. And it was been a mystery hidden from the foundation of the world, Paul says, until it was released, revealed to his holy apostles and prophets. So there's this idea, but that has huge implications if you can grasp it. What it means is you're dead and dead people don't get jealous. You're dead and dead people don't get afraid. You're dead. Dead people don't even commit sin. Why? Dead. And so there's a reality to at a profound level, seeing that when Jesus was crucified, your old man, your old nature, your old inclination, your old desire, your old fear, your old hatred, all of those things were also crucified with him. That's a whole other message how, how that works. But let's just go on. I want you to continue to see this. Um, the second one is in Ephesians 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has what? Has blessed us. With what? Every spiritual blessing. Where? In the heavenly places in Christ. Well, then you discover that 27 times in the gospel of, I mean, in the book of Ephesians, Paul uses that term in Christ or in him. And here's the idea. 
God didn't want to give you all this great stuff and then you run off and do whatever you wanted to with it apart from him. All of this works in relationship with him. Everything he's talking about, we have in Christ, in a relationship with Jesus. Outside of that relationship, it's not going to work. Inside, it should. Now, that Ephesians 1, 3 is that same um, uh, Passion Translation verse. We read, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm has already been lavished upon us as a love gift. So, crucified, past tense, blessed, past tense. Ephesians 2, 6. I'll read 2, 5 also. I'm going to read 2, 6 first for some strange reason. And raised us up together and did what? Made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And I have a feeling when my daddy made me sit somewhere, I was going to sit there. So if God has sat us somewhere, we're sitting there. Now, whether we know it or not, that's a completely different part of the equation. But it's all past tense. Raised us up together, made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ. And then verse 5, even when you were what? Dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So this whole idea of being raised and made to sit or seated means the minute you were in Christ, you were automatically seated in a place of security, a place of blessing, a place of safety, a place, a place of unlimited provision. But you've got to discover how that works. If that really is what God says he did for us. All right, number four, justified. And this is amazing. We're talking about the importance of verb tenses. We're talking about the importance of the past tense. Four, is it up there? Let's read this together. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Okay, now. It's, it's to, to understand the verb tense there helps you understand um, how utterly wonderful God is in the way he relates to us. Because here, here's the Greek verb tenses. It would read this way. For all have sinned and are presently continually. Who knows what that means? It's now. It's happened It's happening now, and it will continue to happen. For all have sinned and are presently, continually falling short of the glory of God. Here is the bad news. You are such a train wreck that on your best day, you are so far off the mark, it's ridiculous. Now, that's that's the bad news. Ready for the good news? Well, so after that, it says being justified freely. So while you are presently continually falling short of the glory of God, you are presently passively being justified freely. 
What is the picture of something that's going on presently and passively? Getting a suntan. Your only job is to be sitting in the sun. All the rest is happening to you. And that's, and, and so what, what Paul is writing here, and it would have been clearly understood to a Greek reader, is that while your life is just this train wreck and you're trying or you're not trying or you're falling short or you're doing the best you can or you're not even knowing what you're doing, you're falling short. At the same time, God has done something in this mysterious way that is presently, passively justifying you freely. Now, we don't fully understand what it, this idea of freely. Freely means, of course, it's free. Jesus, there's another verse in the New Testament. Jesus says, they hated me freely. Well, what does that mean? They hated him without a cause. So here's, here's what the Bible says. While you're presently continually falling short of the glory of God, God is presently, passively justifying you, and you are not giving him a reason for him to do it. That's amazing. It's like a ready line check account. You overdraft, he puts in. I said this years ago and I forgot it. Somebody reminded me. When God picked you, when God determined your destiny, he had already factored in your stupidity. (laughs) He was not surprised when you did that really dumb thing. Right? God never goes, what? (laughs) We go, what, all the time? Presently, passively, being justified freely by the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. That's the gospel. You can't do anything to earn everything God has for you. Now, I can remember years ago, uh, Donna and I went went, went out on faith and because I understand that ready line checking account. We had a $1,000 overdraft, and we were trying to get this church started, and we were so broke, I can remember when we got excited when our bank account was zero. <laughs> Having nothing in our bank account mean we had made up some ground. And so the whole time, we were sort of bouncing checks. God was covering them up to a certain limit, but... I don't know that God has a limit. That's a theological question you'll have to settle with someone else. (laughs) But this is what Paul wrote. This is what Paul said. Paul was accused of saying grace, you know, sin so that grace could abound. Well, he didn't believe that, but he believed something that made people think he believed that. But what he believed in, the unbelievable goodness and grace of God. Now, if you don't repent, you got issues, you got problems. We have to understand some of the process, and we'll look at that in a minute. Um, number five, spoiled. Having done what? Spoiled principalities and powers. What is that all about? It means the enemy's defeated. We, we have a devil whose only power, little p power, comes from deception, lies, and accusations. The word spoiled means disarmed or to divest oneself completely. 
And then it says he made a spectacle of them. There was some spiritual exhibition of Jesus' victory over, over the devil. And then it says triumphing over them. That actually comes from a word that would use, they would use to describe the, um, you ever heard of the God of Bacchus, the God of wine? Or they would have these big drunken um, celebrations. Well, th- there's an aspect of the joy, exuberance, unbelievable goodness of God when people see it and experience that would cause them to celebrate at such a level, you would not be sure what they had been drinking. And that's a legit reality. Here it is written right into Colossians 2.15 if you study the scripture. Okay, verse 6, or or number 6, made free, Romans 8.2. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has done what? Made me free, past tense, from the law of sin and death. Let's look at number 7. Let me me, me look at Romans 8.2. So here's the idea. We don't realize this, but when you were saved, you were automatically freed. And so there's aspects of, of, of what goes on with people's lives. The harder you try to get something you already have, the less of it you enjoy. I had the strangest thing happen to me at the beach. It was either supernatural or an Alzheimer's moment. Donna and I took a couple of days down to the beach, and I was sitting out on this patio by the pool, and it was windy. I had my coat on, had a hat on, reading. And I had left my watch up in the room, and so I asked her if she'd bring my watch down when she came back because she was going back up to do something. And she came back, and I kept reading, and I said, where's my watch? And she said, oh, it's right here in my bag, or maybe I gave it to you, but no, I don't remember, uh, it's in my bag. Then I thought, well, maybe she put it in my bag, looked in my bag. I thought, maybe I put it in my pocket, and I could actually do that and not remember, or, you know, no. And so she went back up to the room. She went back to the main desk. We had some people working in the room. Maybe they stole it. Spirit of accusations always hovering around. I never, I never really, I just... I had an amazing grace. Listen, I got stopped last week by a patrolman for breaking the law and didn't get a ticket. I got some grace working. I'm just enjoying it. I don't know how that works. So I wasn't upset about any of it. I just hoped to have my watch. So I said, hey, my iPhone has this um, program. We can we can track the watch down. So we buzz the watch down, and, and I'm looking at it. It says, gosh, it looks like it's in the ocean or on the beach, but I don't know how accurate. So ladies and gentlemen, I hate to report this to you, but yes, I was on the beach going from group to group. Did you happen to find a, did you happen to find a, and, um, we could never locate it. It would never actually land on where it was. So I thought, oh, well, back to the book. And for some reason, I looked on my wrist, and there was my watch. <laughs> I promise you, with all, I'm serious, with all the honesty I can muster, 
I do not. Look what you have to do to put this watch on. It doesn't just, you, you got to do, do it with two hands. You got to hold it against your chest. You got to make sure, you got to, you got this little thing. You got, you got to get the thing in the right little hole or, oh, that's the wrong hole. It's going to be too loose. Oh, that's the right hole. Ah, tuck that in. Yeah, make sure the sleeve. None of that. So I either blanked at a huge level or the Lord just put that watch on my arm when I went looking. It's entirely up to you. But is there a point to this story other than the pastor's an idiot? Yes. The harder I looked for what I had, the less likely I was to enjoy it. The harder we work to get what's been given, the less we access it. Watchman Nee's great book on, on, on Ephesians, Sit, Walk, Stand. He says, this Christian life starts with you seated. You can't walk until you understand where you're seated and why you can sit there. And then you walk from that place of rest, and then when all hell perhaps could break out, you have the capacity to stand against the wiles of the devil. Adam's first day alive was God's seventh day. His first day, he started resting. He he woke up and said, hey, what do you want to do today? And the Lord said, nothing. (laughs) And I've asked this question last week, and there's a profound revelation in it. Why did God rest on the seventh day? There was nothing left to do. If this gospel was established as a mystery before the foundation of the world, he did it somehow before the seventh day because when he got the seventh day, God not being tired, he was done. He was finished. It was complete like Jesus on the cross. It is finished, meaning it is perfectly perfect or it is completely complete, meaning Everything necessary for you to enjoy a life of freedom and victory and power and blessing that you do not deserve, I myself have done on your behalf. It's gospel. Uh, Healed. Past tense. I don't want to read this. Forgiven. Past tense. And accepted. That's the last one. Now, I could have included perfected. Do you know you've already been perfected according to Hebrews? You're already sanctified. You're sanctified once for all by the offering of Jesus, the Bible says. Then it says, he is perfected forever, those who have sanctified. Every single thing we are to experience in God, we are to discover, not earn. We are to believe into by faith and revelation, depending on the truth of God, and then try to walk it out in our lives. But in Ephesians 1, 6, it says, um, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. I love to say this. That shows up one other place in the New Testament, one other place alone. And it's when the angel of the Lord appears to Mary before the um, impregnation of the Holy Ghost. What do you call that? Immaculate Conception. The angel said, rejoice, highly favored one. 
See, we don't see that. We can see Mary. I mean, really, you have to admire Mary. What a, what a thing for her to believe for, to yield to um, this whole virgin birth. And then to live with all the accusations, all those years about being illegitimate, when in truth, she bore the only legitimate son in history. And the angel called her highly favored. Well, in Ephesians 1, 6, that very same phrase is there and translated a different way. You are highly favored. You have God's disposition towards you at not just the same level that he had of love towards Mary, but as you study, he loves you the same way he loves his own son. There you go. That's amazing. Now, we have this contrast. I've got about 10 minutes here. I mentioned this earlier. Paul prays that God release grace over you and import, impart total way of being into your lives. Then he tells us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms has already been given to us. Well, what's the deal? Why don't we live in it? Why would Paul ask God to give us something he already gave us? Well, the same, re- same reason Paul would pray twice in that same letter, that God would open our eyes, that we begin to see, open the eyes of our heart, that we might understand. Now, the second part you need to understand is that we have an adversary who wants to keep us from every one of the benefits Jesus paid for us to have. Another reason is it takes faith and patience to inherit the promise. Everybody wants more faith. How many want more patience? Don't raise your hand, please, because tribulation works patience. There's a method to getting it. Being patient means what you want, you can't have yet. What you want, you can't have yet. And then because it takes grace to receive it. So I'm going to cover a couple of these. Why would Paul ask God to give us what he already gave us? Why do we not function in all these things right now? Are the promises a lie or the promises true and there's something we don't understand? Well, it's because we have an adversary who wants to keep us from what Jesus promised us. It's because it takes both faith and patience to inherit the promises and because it takes grace to receive. What do you mean it takes grace to receive? When you think you deserve something from God, you begin to destroy the avenue of undeserved favor that it comes on. That's what it is when we're talking about grace. When the policeman stopped me last week, here's what happened. I was, I was, uh, I had developed a brand new cut through that was not actually on the road. I I turned left and from this island and went up about a car length and took a good left up this road to miss two stop signs and uh, something. Yeah. And so what I did not realize was there was a policeman there who knew people were doing that. And his lights were on before I ever completely committed the crime. So when he stopped me, I rolled down my window and I said, I'm guilty, man. I got, I got nothing up. I'm guilty. I got no excuse. I knew it wasn't right. I did it anyway. I deserve a ticket. 
And so he wore me out. He said, do you have a wife? I said, yes. Do you have children? Yes. Grandchildren? Yes. Do you know they could all have lost you today through your stupidity by getting run over in traffic and disobeying the law? And I said, damn it, guilty, man. What are you going to say? How many times do I need to say this? <laughs> you got me. <laughs> she said, well, man, don't do it again. And gave me my license and walked off. You know what that is? Undeserved favor. I was guilty. That's how this works. You can't earn it. You believe for it. Now, I want to talk a little bit about our adversary, the devil, because we are way, this is just the truth, ladies and gentlemen, we are way more affected by him than we're willing to admit. And what I mean affected by our behavior, the things we do, there are only two people that we obey when it comes right down to it, God or the devil. And the behavior is manifested or the obedience is manifested in the behavior. I can show you those verses too. I'm not, I'm just not going to, but in the Passion Translation, when, when, when Brian Simmons translated Ephesians 6, 11 through 13, he did it a little bit differently than what we've already read. He said, put on God's complete set of armor provided for us so that you will be protected as you fight against the evil strategies of the accuser. Well, that tells you three things. He's evil, he has a strategy for your life, and he is an accuser. Your hand-to-hand combat is not with human beings, but with the highest principalities and authorities operating in rebellion under the heavenly realms, for they are a powerful class of demon gods and evil spirits that hold this dark world in bondage. Because of this, you must wear all the armor that God provided. So you're protected as you confront the slanderer. So he's an accuser. He has a strategy, he's evil, and he slanders. He lies to people about themselves, and he lies to other people about other people. That's what he does. For you are destined for all things and will rise victorious, it says. Now, who is influencing us if we accuse and slander people? Here's the real question, and, and, and it's so obvious on, on social media. You know, one reason I don't accuse the president of things people say he's done, because I don't know him. That's not my job. Are we accusers? Are we slanderers? Are we willing to just say things about people when we have no personal knowledge. And, and I'll, I'll be frank, he, he says some stupid stuff. Come on. A lot of the slander that goes on, as the, as the person sitting in the highest office in the land, he's released. He says terrible things about people. It's bad. It's not right. But, he, but that's not the point. He, he's going to answer for his life as are you. And I'm going to say this very clearly. If you are an accuser, if you're a slanderer, 
there is an aspect of your life that is under the direct influence of the evil one. And it will only bring you heartache. It will only bring you pain. And here's another mystery. Everything you see about other people that you don't like, you have in yourself. You just don't recognize it yet. Because you don't see things as they are. You see things as you are. Boy, swallow that, man. I'm serious. That right there is worth $100 today. You don't see things as they are. You see things as you are and think you see them accurately. And then you do what you're going to do. But are we praying for people or accusing them? We have an epidemic of disrespect in our nation at an unprecedented level. I'll tell you one place it started. It was when um, it was either a House of Representative member or um, a senator in the middle of one of Barack Obama's speeches called out liar. That is disrespectful. And the Bible is clear. We have been called to pray for our government leaders. Pray, not accuse, not bash, not beat. Come on, you don't understand what you're doing to yourself. You are enlisting in a self-degradating practice. But the problem is you have all this venom that you think is energy. How many of you know? Come on. Am I in the right places? I know I am. Come on. Okay. Now, how do I know all this? Because I've done all of this. Anyway, evil strategies, slander, accusation. But it takes grace to access what God has given us. And grace does not look like this, criticizing people. That is not what grace looks like. And God says he will guarantee you one thing. He will resist the proud. And when you're an accuser, when you're a slanderer, when you're a mocker, when, when you have um, criticism towards people, it comes from a place of pride. You're only identifying why God has resistance in your life. What's the answer for it? Yeah, man, I knew I shouldn't have turned there. You got me. You don't even have to justify yourself. When you admit to it, he justifies you. That's his job. Your job is to repent. His job is to justify. No repentance, no justification. Practically speaking, when justification is there. But repentance destroys the devil's right to accuse us and hinder our blessings. 1 John 1, 7 through 10. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we do what? We have fellowship with one another And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let me make a couple more comments. Although everything has been given to us, why would even the Lord Jesus himself in the Lord's prayer say, pray this way, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Why would Jesus say this is the way you should pray? Everything stored up for you in heaven, you can have. You have to access it. But then he would put this very strong caveat. For if you forgive men their trespasses, this is the last part of the Lord's prayer, 
Your heavenly Father will also forgive you, but if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So what he's saying is to enjoy everything God has given to us, God's going to mess with our character. There are things he wants us to have desperately that are being hindered by what we have not dealt with or allowed him to touch in our lives. Other things I can't get to because we're running out of time, but let me say this. So then what should we do? Isn't that a great question? Okay, then what do we do? Well, I read Psalm 30. I was talking to Rick Eldridge the other day. He's a friend of mine, and the Lord gave me this psalm for um, a close friend of his that's in a battle, and it's Psalm 37. Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity, for they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. The second verse about cut down, that's... I'm not interested in that. That's some Old Testament stuff right there. I'm not praying that way. But I am saying we shouldn't fret because of what other people do. We shouldn't be envious of what they get by doing it the wrong way. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Let's say that one phrase. Feed on God's faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord. He shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him. He shall bring it to pass. Rest in the Lord. Wait patiently for him. Don't fret. It only causes harm. So what do we do? Here's what you do. You repent. That's what I did when the policeman called me. I I saw something wrong. Did it. Not, hey, man, I was in a hurry, and my wife's having a baby. She's in a, you know, all the stuff. And I just said, um, we can repent. We can forgive. We can resist envy and jealousy. We can stop worrying. We can live in a life of patience and we can feed on God's faithfulness. Let me ask this one thing. How many of you, and I don't want to know what it is, how many of you have something to repent for? Something you would like to admit you want God to forgive? How many of you? Why don't we, yeah, everybody that has something like that, why don't, why don't we just stand and let's pray? And Because here's what will happen. Things will open up for you at another level. Yeah. Yeah, I think I'll stand up too. It says also in First John that he is just and the justifier of those who, I believe it says, believe in Jesus. He's just and the justifier. You see, one of one of the reasons God can't automatically give us everything we want is because he's just. you got stuff in the way. But as you deal with your own sense, your own things you shouldn't be doing, 
And you know what they are. It ain't no secret. You know. It ain't no secret. When you give those to the Lord, you're honest. You own. You The just one justifies you just as if you had never done those things. So, Father, we stand, we, we all acknowledge each individual something they want to give to you or some things. And so, Lord, we ask that, uh, Lord, that you would break things open for us in good ways, that things that weren't working would begin to work because we've uh, removed another barrier to your goodness and your kindness. So, Father, you said you would cleanse us. When you forgave us, you would cleanse us. The stain would be gone. The guilt would be gone. All of that would be gone because of your great, great forgiveness. The strength, the power of the blood of Jesus by which we can draw near to you. We come, Lord, this morning not because of things we've done right. We've come because we're people who've done things wrong, but we bring faith in the blood of Jesus the justification by faith that comes from believing in Jesus. And we thank you, Lord. Lord, make this so real to us that we can't help but jump for joy. We can't help but shout your praises. As Paul said, so that we might be to the praise of your glory. You've been listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church.